Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 25 of Authors on a Podcast Talking Books. I'm your host, David Walters. Today, I have the pleasure of chatting with multi-talented Peter Kinney. Peter is a voiceover artist, actor, singer, and designer living in Southwest London. Uh, raised on Merseyside, he gained a BA in drama from the University of Hull. Peter was a member of the BBC Radio Drama Company and played numerous roles opposite some of the greatest names in British film, theater, and television. Over the past 20 years, he has become a regular recorder of audiobooks, initially for charity with the RNIB and Listening Books, with whom he recorded over 50 titles. But more recently, he has moved into commercial recordings for Hachette, Little Brown Company, Orion, Golots, HarperCollins, Penguin, Hotter, and Isis Publishing. His best-known works in audiobook narration would have to be Christopher Priest's The Prestige, Jonas Jonasson's 100-Year-Old Man novels, Victor Kloss's Royal Institute of Magic, Claire North's more recent novels like 84K, The Pursuit of William Abbey, The Games House, and The First 15 Lives of Harry August, Ian M. Banks' Culture Series, and Andre Sapkowski's Witcher Saga. He is the holder of two Earphones Awards and has recorded over 100 titles. But without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Peter Kinney. Good afternoon, good morning, hello. Hey. Where you <laughs> well, thank you so much for, uh, for coming on today. I know... Uh, we kind of set this up maybe even less than a week ago, but it's it's kind of awesome that we've had this opportunity to chat on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. Sure. It's like a great pleasure to be here. Great, great. And uh, I know uh, we talked a little bit off air. You said it was uh, raining on your side of the world, and it's raining here too. So <laughs> It's a very gray, wet, cold London Sunday afternoon. Okay. See, it's so we we've got the wet, not so much the cold. I think it's about seventy degrees here right now. So. <laughs> I agree. It must be about seven here. I think. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, um, kind of uh, just to kind of start out, tell me a little bit about yourself, uh, growing up, going through school, and maybe any hobbies you had uh, in and outside of school. Sure. Okay. Uh, I mean, you you kind of you covered a lot of it. Um, I was born in Scotland, down in, in the southwest of Scotland, just outside a place called Umfreeks. Uh, and then my parents moved to Merseyside near Liverpool when I was about three years old. And all my schooling started there. I started. I was raised Roman Catholic, and I went to a, a, a convent school initially, run by rather ferocious nuns, who, of whom I was utterly terrified. But then I was only four. <laughs> And then subsequently, I went through the, the, the Catholic school system. I went to um, usual state comprehensive schools. Uh, and um, my hobbies growing up, I kind of, I've, I've always been good with my hands. I'm a, a maker. I love to make stuff. Uh, I've always been a maker. I've, you know, I've, in between times, although I trained as an actor, you know, as, as I'm sure you're aware, it's a very uncertain living. Mm-hmm. And so I actually worked as a carpenter and a builder. I was trained up to be a builder. And uh, I supported myself by fitting kitchens and wardrobes and bathrooms and tiling. But I also did a lot of theatre work. I did a lot of um, theatre design sets, costumes, props. Uh, my first professional job working in theatre was as a prop maker. Um, because I, in, I don't know, I think, I'm not sure it's quite the same in the States, but um, you need to have an equity card back in the day here. It's changed now. But uh, you, you couldn't work as an actor unless you had an equity card. And you couldn't get an equity card unless you got a job. But you couldn't get a job unless you had an equity card. It's one of those <laughs> Catch twenty two situations. So um, a way, a sort of backdoor into getting that for a lot of uh, actors is to go into was in the was to go into stage management and design and stuff. And because I had all these making skills, I was kind of um, I, I went to be a props assistant to the theatre. I was there a week and they promoted me to props master because I was actually better than the guy they had working there. And um, I, and I, it was great. I had I had ended up six years working as a designer. 
and uh, on mainly uh, pantomimes, which is a very British institution. But this was a huge thing. It had a massive budget, and you had a huge cast and with dancers and singers and celebrity lead roles and all that sort of stuff. And I did all the the, the sets and props and costumes and stuff. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was good, good fun. Um, meanwhile, that this sort of urge and desire to, to to work was was kind of burning away inside me. And so when my chance came, I I, I grabbed it, and the rest, as they say, is history. I gotcha. Yeah, I, I I guess it's one of those things where you kind of get your foot in the door and then kind of work your way up. You're talking about the equity card. You know, I say it's Absolutely. just, you know, you kind of find a, find a niche and you get in. And then as you progress and people start, I guess, seeing your name pop up more and seeing you there more often, they're kind of like, all right, you, we want to test you out in this role or something. Yeah, I, I, suppose, I mean, but certainly when it comes to the book, I mean, with acting generally, but, all, but with books as well. It's um, if you if you're known to be reliable, you turn up when you say you're going to turn up. You're prepared. You're ready to do the job. You don't sort of muck around in the studio. You don't waste time. I mean, you do hear stories of people turning up. They've not read the book. Um, I, I mean, I wouldn't. I just that just kind of blows my mind. I don't know. I wouldn't. People even you know, working actors say to me, "Oh, I'd really like fancy doing audiobooks. Do you read the book first? And you kind of go, "Well, would you read your script before you went to a studio? Of course you read the book first. It's your script, you know? Right. So, um, it, it uh, yeah, it, if you are good at your job and you turn up on time and you've done your work and you don't muck around and you take it seriously, you're professional about it, then people will book you again. And if you're lucky, people like what you do. Not everyone does, but that's, you know, everyone's entitled to their taste. I know I'm not everyone's cup of tea. <laughs> yeah, I know I talked to uh, Mark Thompson. He does a lot of the, I guess, I wouldn't say more recent Star Wars books. I mean, he's been doing them for years now, but uh, he kind of said the same thing is like, as soon as he gets the script, he goes through it. Because, you know, they, especially with the Star Wars universe, you've got so many different uh, characters that you've got to do different voices for. And, and also in the, the Witcher series, I mean, there's, there's so many characters you've got to kind of do a different tone for and so forth. Uh, but he would highlight every single one and highlight the scenes they'd be in so he would know exactly where to hit. So it makes mm -hmm. the recording process a little bit easier. Absolutely. It's, um, I mean, what the, the, my process, I mean, I think, you know, we all have different quirks and different, uh, things that we do, is I, I kind of, through reading the story, to, you know, before I actually get to the studio, I'm, I'm picking up all the clues that the author gives you about the character. So any description physical description any if they give you a vocal description that's great that you know then oh great he's got a gravelly voice or she she speaks with a sing-song tone or whatever or they have a specific accent that's all very useful but things like personality what sort of person is this if you were going to make a movie of this who would you cast in that role and then i i give i kind of create a mental thumbnail image in my own mind which sometimes is summed up by one word um something like um uh, there's a there's a British actress called Samantha Bond who was in uh, she played Money Penny in one of the James Bond movies and she's been in loads of uh, fantastic British TV uh, and I worked with her years ago on radio and she's you know she's she's very cool she's very professional and there's a certain class of female characters that I kind of go okay that's a Samantha Bond role so I just put S Bond in the in the in the margin and then the name of the character and I know okay yeah it's that's I'm not doing an impersonation of her. I just know that it's that ballpark of the kind of characters and roles that she tends to play because she's got a very kind of slightly sultry, seductive voice. Um, so that uh, is, is um, you know, it's, it's that sort of thing. And, and for, you know, for guys, 
Um, there's, a, there's a particularly in military books. I do a lot of uh, sort of history stuff of like the Greeks and the Romans and stuff like that. And you get a lot of generals and a lot of uh, different ranks of aristocratic soldiers. And so I, there's a whole range that I call Picard. You get, I'll leave it to you to guess where I get that from. Um, <laughs> so I put that in. That that's that's the little mental picture I have in my head, and I know roughly what ballpark the character's in. I gotcha. So uh, tell me a little bit about your career prior to audiobook narration. So like your time with the BBC Radio Drama Company, I actually saw where uh, you had worked with Toby Stevens um, at one that's point, true. and actually uh, I chatted with Luke Arnold, who was also in in Black Sails with him, who played uh, Long John Silver. Oh. And, I uh, actually worked on Black Sails. I was I did uh, some of the ADR work on Black Sails. Okay, awesome. Yeah, so uh, yeah, I, ch I chatted with Luke. Um, I guess it was last Tuesday uh, about his time with Toby Stevens as well. But yeah, tell me a little bit about your time with the BBC uh, Radio. Radio Drama. Drama. Yeah, basically, um, the BBC ha um, it's it's doing less producing these days, but it has an in-house company of actors who uh, are varying ages, um, and obviously you've got you you'll have. A couple of older guys, a couple of middle-aged guys, a couple of younger guys, a couple of older women, a couple of middle-aged women, a couple of younger women, and they um, they are there on call to cast whatever play or production that the the, the BBC are putting on. Um, and so, and um, uh, they they you know they bring other actors in from the outside. And I did all sorts of plays. I mean, we did things like. Um, uh, I'm trying to think what I did with Toby. Oh, actually, I did um, Guns of Navarone with Toby Stevens, mm -hmm. uh, which was which was quite fun. And um, and it, but I did uh, loads of um, loads of plays, including you know we did some Shakespeare, we did Measure for Measure, um, and lots of history plays. The great thing about radio, of course, as a medium, is that because you it's all audio, uh, you, you're not reliant on lavish sets and costumes, so you can do the most fantastical stories and, and journeys like because we did a production of the Urfast by Goethe which is completely weird I mean it is like you're on some major trip mentally it's kind of very very weird it's it's not just the Faust story that we all know there's lots of sort of metaphysical characters speaking dolphins and apes that climb down out of the trees and quote philosophy so you know that's sort of the sort of stuff you can get away with on radio in a way which perhaps wouldn't work to the same extent, though obviously with digitalization, film is much more interesting these days. So yeah, I mean, on the radio drama company, I was there for a year, um, which is that they they do they tend to do concurrent six-month contracts. So you'll do six months, and then if you've been okay, they'll keep you for another six months. And then subsequently you go back as a visiting artist, which I've done and I've been in various plays. But it was actually there that I did my first sort of short story reading. That was in 1993, 1993. And I, um, it was, it was broad, rebroadcast about a year ago, year and a half ago, uh, late night at BBC Gold or something. And I, I did, I was unaware. A friend of mine said, "Oh, I just heard you on the on the radio." I was like, "Really?" And I, I listened back to the story, and I, it was so long ago. I kind of like, "Is that me? Really? Is that my?" And I, at first, I thought, "No, it must be someone else." And then, as I listened, I went, "No, that is me, but that's a very, very young me." Because <laughs> your voice changes. I mean. Uh, you know, one of the things I, because I, I, I teach about voiceover and audiobooks and stuff, and one of the things that we agree about, very much about in, in the industry is that um, you need to update, keep your voice reels updated, particularly, you know, if you're doing gaming and stuff like that, because voices that you're capable of doing you when you were, you know, 25, 30, now I'm in, I'm in my 50s now, and it's like, no, there's no way I could, you know, I haven't got that flexibility. By the same token, there are roles 
You know, I hear I, I hear all of the younger actors actually damaging their voices because they're trying to go for the gravelly gravitas of the older characters, which will come in time. We, I would give my IT to be able to do what the younger actors can do, but that boat sailed for me. So I, I do say to them, you don't force your voice into these dark places too early because you can actually damage it and get to the point where your voice loses its flexibility. Um, but, it, you know, that gravitas will come. Play to your strengths. Huh. Yeah, you know, I, honestly, I, I never really thought about that. Uh, you know, starting starting as a younger voice actor and as you kind of plot along, if, you know, damaging your vocal cords or getting to a point where you can't, reach certain pitches uh with, with your voice and, and you're like okay well <laughs> that 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 part's out now so now what do i go on to <laughs> yeah exactly huh. and it's the same when, when casting a role in an audiobook for instance i know i, I would bang on all, all the time just about audiobooks but just, it's, it's relevant that you know okay the, the the author will say deep there's a particular author's book, books I work with, and everybody's either got incredibly deep, gravelly voices or incredibly high, squeaky voices. And right. you kind of go, oh, give me a break here, you know? Um, but uh, I would always say, regardless of, you know, I, I try to stick to what an author has written as much as possible and not to add anything. Um, but if, you know, if you've got a character who's going to be speaking a lot, then make sure it's a voice that you can sustain for a long time because you're going to have to work with that voice for a long time. Right. Uh, if you if you set this character with a voice that's down here and it's talking away, I mean that's great. But if you're going to do that for an hour and a half, are you going to be able to speak after that? Right. Just prepare <laughs> yourself. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and let you know if if we end up recording again, you're gonna have to do the high squeakly voice like the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I seriously, um, Ian Banks in one of his books. He had a character who's, who's uh, it was well, it was a scene set in a kind of weird psychedelic party, and um, and it was this tiny little toy who spoke like this all the way through because he was breathing in helium, and then he would take another drug, and his voice would kind of, <laughs> and then he'd take the helium again, and, be, and it just drove me bananas. It, but it was great fun to do, but it was exhausting. Right. <laughs> I can imagine. I'm sure uh, you went through many glasses of water and had to kind of take a break because. I can imagine, like, it kind of makes you a little lightheaded at some point. Well, you can, yeah. I mean, there are certain character voices. I mean, for instance, um, I mean, I... Hmm, well, now, here we're getting quite uh, shark-infested waters here. Um, there are the, 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 the world is, of audiobooks is split as to, you know, do people want it to be performative or do they just want it read, mm -hmm. as if they're someone's reading them a bedtime story? Or do you actually want you know, to be immersed in a sort of... People often have described my recordings as being like listening to a radio play but with you know it's just there's only one person doing all the voices um which is kind of what i do and when people book peter kenny that's they know that that's what they're booking um and i my feeling is if they if the writing is full-blooded and you've got lots of full-blooded characters then you're kind of shortchanging both the author and the listener if you don't go for it by the same token if the writing is very restrained and the characters are subtly drawn then you do you do you, you do a subtler performance, you pull back, you do less. Um, you, you have to be guided by the writing. Um, so, uh, you know, in, um, I, I tend to kind of go for it. If, if, if the author has given me permission by the, the style of their writing, I will inhabit their world with the characters as I hear them in my head. I mean, that's, that's the way to go. <laughs> I can't really think of, of another way to, to go about it because well, I, no, there are, it's actually it's very interesting because there are some amazing readers. Um, I'm just off the top of my head of Finty Williams, who's um, Judy Dench's daughter. 
she uh, when she records her her characterizations are incredibly subtle, but they work. Yeah. And she, and she never really moves away from her own vocal range. And it, and you're totally there, and you get all the characters, but it's very it's very delicately done, and much less performative perhaps than than I, I I'm suited. So I, I'm probably less well suited to the kind of books that she would record. Um, but it, it's just it's 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 in it, it, you know the, the school of thought is divided. Some people think no, he's just an old ham, and other people think no, wow, that's amazing. This guy can do so many different voices, and as a, that's my gift. I feel well, you know that's that's what I should do. That's I say not a lot of people seem to like it, so I'll take it on faith that, that it's working. I gotcha. Yeah, I uh, I, I I get your point. Yeah, because I've listened to a few by Fenty Williams, and she does uh, uh, Michael R. Carey's books like uh the girl with all the gifts and the boy on the bridge um and she also does uh which i haven't listened to him and i know a ton of people on audible have gotten them but it's uh terry mancor's spellmonger series on audible i think she's Mm -hmm. done like i don't know how many books that thing's gonna be at i'm pretty sure that series is supposed to go over 10 books long but yeah but yeah she she's incredible but yeah you're right she she's very subtle and the different tones that she uses, but it works. I mean, it, you're, still, you're still super engaged with it. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Um, so as far as, I guess we'll kind of stick to audiobook narration, but was there kind of a, anybody that influenced you into doing audiobooks? Did somebody just kind of see you in a play or hear you sing no, or what, something? It, or? So the, the story behind that is that uh, I, I, I was on the, the, the radio drama company for a year and then I left the BBC and I, went, I did a lot of a lot of my theatre work was touring. I toured all over the world. I toured the States uh, in a production of The Tempest um, and we went to uh, this particular production and toured it off and on for about five years and all over the world. Went to China, all over Europe, Russia, Romania, Poland, Czech Republic, Trinidad. Um, yeah, it was, it was an amazing tour. And uh, But anyway... A couple of years after I'd left the BBC, I was sitting on a tube train in London and sitting opposite me was a guy who I used to work with at the BBC, a producer. And I went, oh, hi, how are you doing, Matthew? And um, it turned out he'd moved from the BBC and he was working for this charity, Listening Books, who are a charity that make audio books for people with a disability, not blind people, because that's covered by the, the Royal National Institute of Blind People, the RNIB. Um, but Listening Books is for people who perhaps because of some physical difficulty or, or, or disability, they can't hold a book in the traditional way. And they can't turn the pages, particularly if they're uh, youngsters who are doing their, still doing their schoolworks and stuff. So they, they record all the set texts for, for schoolwork and other stuff. And this was back in, say, it was about 95, I think. And, um, and we started chatting and he said he was doing this. And he said, I don't suppose I could persuade you to come and read for us. And I said, I'd be delighted. You know, he said, I, we don't pay. You know, you pay you expenses. And I was, you know, I was a jobbing actor. I was still doing my carpentry work. And I, you know, I had enough work on. But I thought, no, well, I could do this. And this is, it's kind of like keeping your your your, your weapons honed by by using the voice as it's one of the major tools of an actor. Um, so, yeah, that, that I started recording for, for him, uh, listening books. And then the team in the studios expanded. A couple of younger producers came in. And then one of them went off to the RNIB and said, oh, there's this guy I worked with at Listening Books. You should get him in to do some sci-fi stuff. He's done some great character stuff. So that happened, and I went to the RNIB. And then he went to another studio, which was a commercial studio called uh, Strathmore Publishing. And they were looking to 
um, re recruit a, a, a narrator for a, a kids. I've, to this day, I couldn't tell you what it was. It was a, a kids series, a young 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 adult series of sort of space pirate books. And they said, "Would and so the producer phoned me up and said, would you give us a sample? Because I've never worked with you. And I went, okay. He said, uh, what do you want? And he said, well, just something you're, you're familiar with that's sort of a bit science fiction-y and, and with a few characters in so we can get a sense of what you do. <coughs> so I just, um, I actually had an Ian Banks book on my shelf, which I'd done for the RNIB. And I thought, okay, well, I'll do some excerpts from that. So I did a few excerpts of this Ian Bank, Ian M. Banks sci-fi, one of the cult novels from Gunsida Fleas. Oh, look to window, I think it was. And um, anyway, so I, I sent it off and I didn't hear anything and I didn't get the job. And I thought, oh, oh, well, that's a shame. But there you go, you pick yourself up and carry on. Six months later, I was skiing, which is my probably my major hobby to this day. I love skiing. I have only had one trip this year. I couldn't afford to do another. But anyway, um, we... Um, uh, he said, yes, about six months later, I was skiing and my phone went and it was this rather plummy voice saying, hello, um, you, you sent us a sample of uh, six months ago of an Ian Banks book. I went, yes, yeah, that's right. And thinking, oh, great, maybe this kid's pirate series has come around. Oh. He said, would you like to record the next Ian Banks? He's just written a new novel and we think you'd be rather good at it. And I kind of went, uh, die, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I was like, yeah, absolutely, I bit his hand off. Um, and that was the first of the Ian Banks's, which is actually, it wasn't his, one of his sci-fis, it was one of his more mainstream fiction, The Steep Approach to Garbadale. And then I subsequently recorded the rest of the, bar three or four, four books, I actually then recorded the rest of, of, of all of Ian's books, God rest him, before he went. That's impressive. That's a, yeah, and that's a, and that's a great series. Now I haven't I haven't read it, I've, but I've heard phenomenal things about it. I, I definitely need to get to it. I've got a I've got a buddy just down the road that I think he's been doing a reread of it. Uh, he may even do it every year, but he does which, which book of uh, the culture series. Oh, the culture. Yeah, yeah, they are. If you've not done, you, you, I mean, consider Phlebas is kind of. People often say, "What's the first one to start with?" I would say just for sheer fun, start with player of games because the thing about the culture books is they each stand alone. Mm -hmm. They don't, you, you don't necessarily, you, it, you know, they, they, it isn't like a, a sequential series where you need to follow on a, a, a narrative line. They, it's just this vast concept, the culture, and it's some different adventures from different characters living in this extraordinarily imagined future world. Um, but historically, the, the consider Phlebas, it was actually the first one he published. And it is the one that kind of sets the concept and it gives you an idea of just the sheer immensity of the world that he's created. It's not a world, it's, a, it's, it's galaxies wide. It's absolutely vast. And in fact, things like, you know, um, uh, was it, is it Masters? Not you, Masters. What's the thing with it where they've got the, the raccoon and, the, and Groot and all that? The oh, uh, Guardians of the, of the Galaxy? Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. That, 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 you think that vastness of image, that Ian Banks was writing that stuff in the 80s. You know, he was way ahead of the curve with just the, sh I mean, the, the sheer colossal size of his spaceship, you know, entire uh, civilizations that, that cover a, 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 a sentient spaceship that is 2,000 miles long mm -hmm. and 5,000 miles wide. You know, I mean, that's kind of just how big his vision was. Yeah, uh, and he and he he was way ahead of everybody with that. Really, it was kind of he he kind of led that 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 charge. That's just why I love his work so much. Yeah, I gotcha. Uh, where do you typically record audiobooks at? Do you have a, a home office you record in, or do you go to a studio? 
Um, I usually go to a studio. I do have a home uh, studio setup where I've got uh, an acoustic cave, as I call it, uh, where I can work. Um, and it's, it, it make, creates a good sound. And I have actually recorded books there. But usually I go to commercial studios and record with a, an engineer or, and or a producer. Sometimes you have both. It's, not, it's very rare these days. But um, you always used to have a producer and an engineer. But now you've got an engineer who works with you and, and um, sort of does all the technical stuff. Because I'm a bit, as you know, I'm not very brilliant with technology. <laughs> oh, you're completely capable. <laughs> Yeah, I was wondering because I, I know, uh, like you know, like I said, like Mark Thompson goes into a studio and they've got a producer and engineer because they also, because with the Star Wars audiobooks, they put in music and sound effects and so forth kind of right. in the background to make it more of kind of like an audio drama. Um, yeah. And then I've got uh, a friend that actually lives in downtown Birmingham, just a little ways away from me that records for Tantor. And he's got um, his own little studio kind of in a... Um, I guess you would say an exterior building that he's got oh, yeah. soundproofed and everything that he uses for his. So I, mm. I know it's always a different kind of thing. I guess it all just depends on the publisher and what is it really kind of what they want you to do. Okay. Yeah. So I gotcha. Um, so is, uh, is audiobook narrating, is that your full-time gig now or do you still act some or sing? Um, well, I, I, I regularly sing in a, a church choir on Sunday mornings. Um, the, the, there's a, a high Catholic church that does a, a Latin mass every Sunday morning. So it's Mozart or Bruckner or Vittoria or any of the great classic composers. Um, this morning we did some Talis and some Bird. And um, so I do, I do that. I sing bass. I was actually a countertenor uh, for many years. I, um, when I was working for the Royal Shakespeare Company, uh, the roles I played tended to be singing roles, um, so I would, because uh, uh, I had this quite high. I can't I can't do it these days. But my, my voice has aged, but I used to be. Uh, I, yeah, I used to be able to sing up to a top C for a soprano, and um, so I kind of did a did a lot of singing at one stage and toured with an early music company, um, doing sort of Tudor or Renaissance music and stuff like that. Um, but nowadays, uh, it's it's just the church. As as opposed with work, um, I mean, as well as doing obviously doing the audiobooks, I do a lot of uh, I do some gaming work. I've done some animation. Occasionally, get pick up commercials, and uh, I do a bit of ADR work, revoicing and uh, filling in. Do you 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 understand about ADR? What how, how that works? No, I'm not uh, not familiar. It, it's basically, it's bit it's a bit like the audio equivalent of being an extra. So, for instance, if you were to look at Game of Thrones and you get those big crowd scenes, most of which were filmed somewhere like um, uh, Croatia or somewhere, mm. and all the extras are, will have the local accent and dialect, which is no use, of course. They can't use that sound for the um, for, for the when they were broadcast because obviously the characters don't speak that language. So what they do is they get a team of people like myself to go in and we revoice the crowd. So you get so for instance, take a scene like where Cersei does her walk of shame down through the city, and you've got all these people shouting at her. Well, you and you can see there are people's mouths moving, and what they do is they record you at full belt, going, "She's a girl, she's horrible, we hate her," or whatever, but really shouting, not faking it. And then they pull it down, pull it down, pull it down, pull it down, and they add it all together, and you get this sort of sound wall world which surrounds the foggy one, which is the the sound effects of the wind and the trees or the you know, the birds singing and the, the people footsteps walking down the street, that's all called Foley. And ADR is the spoken word that you see in the background of films and movies and television. And it is pretty much these days nearly all dubbed that way. 
um, you wouldn't believe it, but it, it, usually this, the quality used on location is, isn't just isn't good enough. And so they will get people in to re-record their own dialogue. The actors, the leading actors, will come in and re-record their own dialogue, and the um, in, so that you get a good quality uh, digitalized sound when it gets broadcast. I'm not gonna lie. I think you just kind of blew my mind a little bit because <laughs> I, I I never heard about that. But that's that's really interesting. That that because there's a lot of detail that goes into that. Absolutely, and and uh, you know the, there are a lot of studios that focus on doing it because it, I mean they've been doing it since the 1960s. Mm -hmm. um, it, it was it was kind of worked on then, and they realised actually we can we can improve the sound by. Because also they, they did try. They thought, well, you know, you just need people going blah, 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 in the background. Right. They tried that, and that's exactly what it sounds like. It sounds like people going blah, 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 <laughs> And it just is ridiculous. It bears no relation to what's actually in. Because extraordinarily, our ears and our eyes and brain are so attuned that if we see one, someone's mouth in the background and it's saying something very obvious like, um, oh, go away, or shut up, or whatever, um, that if you don't hear that, even if it's almost subliminal, it's so quiet, you'll kind of go, "Ooh, that person spoke and there was no sound." Right. And so they do. They literally have to pick out. They have to pick, which is why you know when they're choosing camera angles and everything, they will try as much as possible not to get too many. They will focus in on the central characters and not get too many mouths obviously moving. I mean, sometimes they've got people who've got specific lines, mm -hmm. and but they will usually get those actors in to re-record themselves. Um, but it's those people in the crowd who are maybe shouting out in Croatian, I want oranges for lunch, or whatever it is. <laughs> um, and, but, you know, that's nothing to do with the script. So you, you, they get someone like us to, you know, improvise a line. Or, the, or, or sometimes the script writers will have actually written text and they say, okay, can you get one of your ADR crew to read this line to go with that person's mouth in the background? Um, because the extra, obviously they can't pay to put an extra over from Budapest to record in London. So... Um, it's uh, yeah, you know, it's it's fine. It's just another ang angle aspect of audio work. Yeah. Oh, uh, so tell me about uh, a little bit about your process when you're getting ready for a new recording gig. Do you have a set meal you eat every day? Do you have a daily routine that you go through uh, before uh, and after you record? Or it's well sort of. Um, it's actually quite an interesting question because um, the uh, generally speaking, my recording day when. You know, obviously, quite a part. I'll talk a little bit about prep in a second, but um, the actual recording day uh, usually starts. I arrive at the studio, say quarter past nine. If we're having a nine thirty, not for ten o'clock start, then I record for an hour and a half, ten, fifteen, twenty minute break. Another hour and a half, forty five to minutes to an hour for lunch. Then another hour and a half, fifteen twenty minute break, and then another hour and a half. And that's the end of a recording day, usually. I mean, that's very roughly it. It kind of, it, it's a bit more flexible. Mm. Um, the, my particular process, particularly if I'm working in a studio in London, um, because of where I live in southwest London, it takes me literally 15 minutes to get into the centre of London uh, by overground train. However, when you actually choose to get on that train, is a, it makes a big difference to the quality of your journey and the kind of mental state you're going to be in by the time you get to work. Because if you if you go, go at the wrong time, that 15-minute journey can end up taking 45 minutes to an hour because you may not get on trains, the trains are all crowded, people are grumpy, they're all packed together, which given what we're going through in the world at the moment is not necessarily very conducive to a happy day. So what I actually do on my working day is I go 
into the studio and I'm usually in the vicinity of the studio from about eight o'clock onwards, even though I'm not booked, say, till 9.30, 10 o'clock. I have a breakfast and anyone who knows me knows that I don't eat breakfast. I know, I know, I know everyone's out there going, oh, but you should always eat breakfast. It's the most important meal of the day. Yeah, I, I know that, but I don't eat it. I don't, I just have, I don't feel like eating first thing in the morning. I like a cup of tea, maybe a slice of toast. Um, but on working days, I have to eat a breakfast because otherwise you suffer from uh, Mount Etna erupting quietly in the background sorry, in every book you record, which is just stomach going. And trust me, it can be very, very loud. And um, so I always have a breakfast. Uh, and usually it'll be something like uh, uh, eggs, some, some sort of scrambled egg or uh, an egg mayo sandwich or something like that with a coffee. And that allows my, my digestive tracks to have something to work on also because i've arrived an hour early or an hour and a half early to the studio it allows me to be in the zone when i get to the studio i am there to do my job i don't arrive going oh my god i've had a job i've seen that happen and if that person is not ready to sit down and record a book they're not in the right place you need to be in the right place and i mean i'm if i'm coming across as a bit pious i don't mean to it's just personally i know that i would not be ready to be to give a nuanced and engaged, involved performance if my head was still stuck inside the journey I've just had. Um, so I, that's why I allow myself the time to, to set myself up for the day. I gotcha. Um, uh -huh. Yeah, so uh, you had mentioned a little off air about uh, recording uh, some stuff, kind of like what to do, what not to do, or what you do and not everybody else should do. <laughs> Yeah, uh, there's, a, there's a, an online company I, I work with called uh, Gravy for the Brain, who uh, run by a chap called Hugh Edwards and Peter Dixon, who's one of the top voiceovers in, in the UK, like the world, arguably in the world, actually. Um, and we do uh, various online training modules. And I, I recorded some about four or five years ago, which are a little bit out of date now because I hadn't quite made the digital leap at that stage. I was still working from paper. And there are still people who prefer to work from paper. But actually, I have I do now work from a, a tablet, and my my script will be all marked up on a tablet. So, uh, but I teach about that process, and as I've always said, I don't try and teach people how to do audiobooks. That's not what I would be teaching. I teach how I show how I do audiobooks and how I do my prep and what's worked for me, and also to kind of show off the mistakes that I've made because I've made plenty, and by sharing those, I kind of say to people, you know, I've done that now. You don't need to make that mistake. You can make your own mistakes and find your own journey, but these are pitfalls you can avoid to help yourself. And it's a great online resource if people are interested in working in audiobooks or in, in voiceover generally. Grave for the Brain is a great website, and it's it's not as expensive as some. I think I think you, you pay an initial subscription, and then you get literally three four hundred hours worth of, of free stuff for less than a hundred bucks, I think. But anyway. Um, Oh, you can research that yourselves. But um, yeah, so with my prep, um, if I have time, when I first started out, I used to religiously read every book three times before I could before I got to the studio. Um, just the first time, just to read it, just to have that journey as a as a reader and enjoy, you know, the, the author's craft. Then the second read through would be kind of starting to pick up character notes, picking up. Um, you know, any references to species, you know, particularly if you're doing with swords and you know, sword and sorcery fantasy or sci-fi, you know, they're not necessarily human. Um, so you've got to, you know, is it species, gender, age, race, um, uh, personality? So that's Mount Etna. Did you hear it there? 
there it is. That's my stomach rumbling because <laughs> I haven't eaten my lunch. Um, so yeah, the the um, so yeah, you pick up all the clues you can and create these mental thumbnails that I mentioned earlier, so that you then mark those down the side of the text. Um, I use a, I've got a, a stylus pen, so I just literally write onto the screen, you know, you know, whatever notes it is. He said laughingly, I, had, you know, if, or you know, if it's an important bit of plot that's being discussed, and I'll put notes to myself, you know, this is important. Slow up, make sure this is clear. Things like that. Um, sometimes authors do what I call flow on, where sentences you think are going to end, but actually they don't. They carry on, and just when you think it's not going to stop, it doesn't stop because it carries on a little bit further. Do you know what I mean? Some, it, it's just, it, it's, it, there are some sentences which are slightly longer than you've perhaps allowed breath for. So you can save time and, but when you get to the studio by marking those up. I underline and I have a little segue sign at the end of each line saying, look, this thought flows on. And I mark the end of every sentence so that I know that that thought ends there, that I've only got to get to there. And trust me, when you've, if you've done a, you know, you've, you're on the fifth hour of a, a six-hour day and you're a little bit tired and it's the end of, the, of a four-day week when you've perhaps been in the studio every single day and your brain is a little bit, oh, I don't want to see any more words, please don't make me read any more words. Um, if you've gone ahead in advance and marked the end of every sentence and you turn, you scroll up a page and it's entirely narrative and there's no conversation, that's a, a solid block of narrative and your kind of brain goes, oh, my word. Um, so if you've marked where the sentences are, you just know, I just need to get to there. I just need to get to there. just need to get to there. And it, it just kind of, it kind of slightly takes the panic out of, of thinking, oh, my God, I've got all these words to say. Yeah. So, so that's, that, that's part of the process. <laughs> I feel like it's the same thing in reading, too. If you, if you have just a bunch of expose and you don't really have any conversations going on, you're like, I'm never going to finish these pages. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, as, as writers you know, wow, um, I, I've attempted to write and I, I bow down, I fall at their knees because I've never written a book and they have. And, you know, there are some, some books that are less well written than others, but the fact is someone has sat down, used their phenomenal imaginations. I kid, kid you not, there's not a single book I've read. I mean, there are some books I've liked less than others, but there's no not a single book I think I've ever read that I've not admired the sheer extraordinary imagination of the authors because they are incredible, the things they come up with. And I just think, where do they drag this from? What? 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 <laughs> um, stuff that would never occur to me in a million years. And so, you know, I admire that, that gift and that talent. And I, I'm very lucky to be trusted with their words. Absolutely. And speaking of amazing worlds and amazing books, uh, so I have to ask, especially with how big The Witcher has been through the books and video games before and then continues to be now with the Netflix series, what is it like knowing that you have voiced such a beloved character in Geralt of Rivia? Wow. Well, there's there's a thing, Geralt. Uh, to me, he's Geralt. Um, it, when, when we recorded the books, um, uh, we first started, it was about seven years ago I first started recording them. And they, they were just being translated into English at that stage. And um, we were aware of the game. But at that point, the publisher said that uh, Andre was not brilliantly enamored of the games. He felt that the games that had nothing to do with his books. He, he wished them no, no harm, no malice. But as far as he was concerned, his books were one thing. The game was something completely different and they could do what they liked. Yeah. So they said to me, 
don't go to the games as your source. Just just do as you do your process with the books as you would normally do. So I I didn't I never listened to Doug Cockle, who I've now I'm now in touch with um, subsequently. I didn't I did so I had no idea what they did with those characters. Um, so I was kind of given quite a free hand, which was was amazing because uh, I had a, a wonderful producer I was working with, Katie uh, Jones. And so when we first got the first book, because can I, I'm now going to put this out there for any any fans of The Witcher who've read the books or listened to the books, and there'll be a burning question which a lot of people ask me. So bear with me if I if I spend a bit of time on this. There is a character who, in the TV show and in the game, is called Yaskier or Jaskier, mm-hmm. um, and in the books, the first set of translations, the first three books that were translated, he is his name is spelt D A N D I L I O N. So that is Dandelion, not Dandelion, which is D-A-N-D-E-L-I-O-N. <laughs> However, we were unaware at this stage that this was a mistype by the, uh, the translator. She was unaware that Dandelion was, was, was a specific spelling in English because she was Polish translating into English. Mm. And so uh, we didn't know this. So I, so I said Dandelion. And actually, I rather liked it because it fitted his character, this rather foppish uh, pretentious uh, bard character, and I thought actually that the fact that he would deliberately say his name Dandelion, as opposed to Dandelion the flower, would be very indicative of his character, a bit like the character of Hyacinth Bucket in Keeping Up Appearances. I don't know if you know that TV series, uh, but there's this woman whose name's Hyacinth Bucket, and she calls herself Hyacinth Bouquet because uh, she doesn't like to think her name's Bucket. Well, d- d- I, I, the Dandelion. Dan- anyway, subsequently this error was corrected, and and so it was it was spelled correctly Dandelion. So at which point we'd already recorded three books with Dandelion. So Kate and I just hummed and hawed, and I said, "Well, actually, should we just lean on the e a bit to acknowledge that it's that the it's now the, the spelling's changed?" So so then we started calling him Dandelion, and then I got virtual death threats. I mean, literally people <laughs> sending me emails saying, "What kind of an asshole are you? How could you do this to me?" Oh! Getting really really cross. Right. So you know what? You don't you don't know how to know say I don't you know how to say this word. So I went, okay, okay, we'll go to Dandelion. We'll call him Dandelion, all right. Um, but by this time, the books weren't actually recorded in consecutive order. They were just recorded in the order they were translated. Mm-hmm. So for listeners starting the series, it sounds like I go, Dandelion, 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 Dandelion. It sounds like it keeps on jumping backwards and forwards. Right. But that's literally just because the books were recorded in, I think it was uh, The Last Wish, Blood of Elves and Time of Contempt. Then we went back to Sword of Destiny. Just Destiny, yep. and then it was. Uh, a, a, I think after that it was a Baptism of Fire, and and so it, it all. Anyway, it jumps around because of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so because they were all recorded out of out of sequence. So I apologise wholeheartedly. <laughs> there are actually very serious practical reasons for why it happened. <laughs> But I say, yeah, because because uh, the last wish was the short story collection, and so then you actually recorded book one and book two, and then came back and did the second short story collection. That's right. In wow. fact, I think we did book one, book we did the first short story collection, books one, books two, books three, and books four. It was when we did the Dandelion. Then Sword of Destiny came back, and then it became Dandelion. Dandelion from Sword of Destiny onwards, it was Dandelion. But then, of course, from from Sword of Destiny, it leapt forward to. Um, uh, after what comes after Baptism of Fire. Uh, Tower of Swallows. Oh, Tower of Swallows, and then The Lady of the Lake, and then uh, Season of Storms. Yep. So that's why it appears to jump around. 
Interesting. See, see now, except I've, I've read or I've listened to the last question, sort of destiny and I haven't started the full series yet, but now I'm going to go back and just to hear the different ways you say it. Cause I didn't notice it, but apparently some people listen particularly to that word. Well, also if he's a favorite character and, right. and it's, it is the sort of thing that can really distract you. And, and I, you know, I'm, I'm, with hindsight, of course, I would have, I would have wished that I'd we'd done Dandelion right from the start. But I, not knowing this and seeing this very specific, had it been Dandelion the flower right from the start, mm-hmm. I would have said Dandelion. But because it was, was spelt with an I, and because I work with words all the time, I thought, ah, the author is making a point here. This mm-hmm. character wants to not be Dandelion. He wants to be Dandelion because he's a bit posher. He's a bit grander. He's not just some weed that grows in the gutter, um, which is kind of, his character, I and mean, that's very much what Dandelion's like, or Yaskit. So, um, but uh, no, they, they were such great characters to create. And then, you know, people have asked me about the races and everything. Um, it, well, when you first meet um, uh, Ciri's family, um, they, they, of course, uh, they are fierce warriors who have a tribe, who live in clans, and um, they wear kilts and plaid. So it just seemed obvious to me they must be Scottish. That's an analogue for Scots or Irish, possibly. So I did uh, Scots for for, for the for her family um, and Calanthe and all of that because you know, that that was their culture. Um, uh, and then when when it came to the dwarves, the dwarves were miners who were, who loved to sing and have a drink and were kind of robust characters, which is very typical of of Welsh culture you know, in the UK. Miners, so that's the dwarves became miners because of, of those cultural resonances and the elves um, or the elder races generally speaking all were variations on a slightly sort of it's like halfway but I, I try not to be too specific with accents um uh, I'll, I'll talk about Geralt in a second um it, it wasn't I wasn't doing a Spanish accent or an Italian accent or a French accent or a Romanian accent I was kind of doing something that was a bit of a melange of it just sounded exotic uh, because they, they they are the elder races, and so you've got the the the, the dryads, the the elves, the half elves, um, and and other sort of species that were of the elder races. So I gave them this slightly exotic way of speaking, which just to differentiate them, because there are so many different characters that they needed something that so you you could tell which who was speaking when. Right. Um, and when it came to Geralt, uh, people have asked me, you know, oh, so is it a Hull accent, or is it is it a Merseyside accent, or is it? And, and again, it, I was deliberately aiming for what I would call generic northern. So he kind of flits around the Pennines, um, which is an area down the centre of the UK in the north. Um, so he's he. there's a bit of Hull, there's a bit of Merseyside, there's a bit of Lancashire, there's a bit of York. It's sort of, it's deliberately not specifically one area. Um, and I did actually, when when, people, when news first broke about the, the TV show, with the Netflix show, I, I did put out on Twitter, I thought it would be a great Easter egg for the, because um, when you first meet Geralt in The, in the, the Last Wish, mm-hmm. he walks into a bar, you know, a tavern in a, in a small village, and these tall boys sitting at the bar start having a conversation about his accent. Where do you think he's from? What, what's that accent? What's it? Oh, it's Rivian, isn't it? And I just thought it would be great if Doug Cockle and I had played those two characters. <laughs> it would have been hilarious, I think. Just a nice little joke <laughs> packed into, the, um, packed into, the, into the, the TV show. Right, right. Um, so, uh, have you, have you watched the, the Witcher series? I've, I've seen uh, snippets of it. I'm actually going back to my, uh, lack of brilliance of technology. I have actually got a Netflix membership, but I'm having a problem with my internet broadband supplier. 
And uh, so I haven't actually had time to see many bits. I've seen the uh, the first two episodes. Okay. I haven't actually seen the whole of it. So. Okay. And I, it's, I, I think um, Henry Cavill is extraordinary. Yes. Absolutely extraordinary. Because it's, it's, there's, he, there's not much to play with with Geralt. You know, he's because he's the way he's described is actually it's very, very specific and very it's quite kind. It's a very contained character. So to get uh, he's and he's amazingly nuanced with him. And I just think he just looks as soon as he I saw the you know the first because they 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 trailered a few you know clips you know take teasers before they released it. And I thought yeah, absolutely, that's nailed it. Yeah. And now in now in my mind when I think of those characters, I can't I can no longer see the image I had in my head. I can only see Henry Cavill. Yeah. So it's a bit like, um, what's his name? It was Gandalf. Um, Ian McKellen was oh, Gandalf. Yeah. I can now not see Gandalf any other way. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the image I had in my head when I first read the books as a kid, you know, you were asking about influences earlier. You know, Tolkien, of course, uh, growing up as a kid. And those, it may, you know, the images that you build up in your mind, well, he's, um, Henry Cavill's done that with Geralt. He's completely embodied that character to the point where I can't imagine him being anyone else. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, that's that's the one thing that's nice about uh, about good uh, adaptations uh, is that you know when you go back to read them, if you even if you have read them before or haven't read them before, you can you can literally picture what's happening because you can see the characters themselves instead of yes. just reading the descriptions and kind of imagining what they look like. Um, and especially, especially with The Witcher and Lord of the Rings and, and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, and it's, it is sacred ground, you know, for yeah. for the fans of the program and, the, and of the of the games and of the books. Um, I'm never unaware that I'm treading on sacred territory. You know, with the with the um, Ian M. Banks culture novels, there is such a ground support of fans of his work and Ian's writing, which is extraordinary. That I, you know, I was very very conscious that okay. The, the, you know, you can't muck around with this stuff. Um, and as I said, I try not to introduce something into a book that isn't somehow there implicitly in the text. Uh, I don't just randomly give an act, a character an accent or something um, unless it's for a specific reason because, you know, we need to differentiate him in some way from somebody else. But if the author doesn't give you that, then you can't just bring it in randomly. It kind of, it, it gets very distracting for the, um, for the listener if you do. Yeah. Um, so what are you working on now? I know your latest release was Justin Call's Master of Sorrows uh, from Blackstone well, Publishing. Um, well, no, there have been, been, been a few releases since that. I mean, just, of, course, I just, of course, it's only just recently been released in the States. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's, it's been, it was just released in the States, I don't know, like 20 days ago. That's so. right, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, it, it, I've, since then, I've recorded quite a few bits. There's um, a series by a young Australian writer, uh, Willem Neal, um, called the Embered Soul. Uh, just recorded that, which not sure when that's going to go live. That'll be probably later this year. Um, there's been um, all sorts of things. Actually, I've got my my magic notebook here. I should quickly consult it. Just what have I been doing? Oh, that's right. I did a new. Um, there's been a new recording of the Woman in White, which is a classic novel from the 19th century. Uh, it was the first crime novel. And that's been a multi-voice with lots of uh, other fantastic voice actors, including Simon Vance doing all the um, the, the chapter narrations and stuff. Um, and then to oh, Robert, there's a new Robert Fabry to the strongest, which is a, um, book one and a new series about the the, the collapse of the uh, of Alexander the Great em, em, Great Empire. Because when he died, he was only thirty-seven, I think, 
or something, or maybe slightly younger. And he, uh, and on his deathbed, he had seven generals, and they were all there. And he, and they said, well, you know, which one of us do you want us to? Who, who's going to succeed you? And of course, he didn't want anyone to to better his achievement, so he just said, I'll leave it to the strongest. And of course, which meant that they tore them tore each other apart, and, they, and it, the battles went on for another twenty years. They literally ripped each other apart in, in an attempt to try and keep his empire. They they destroyed it, which is kind of they think he probably knew what he was doing. He didn't want anyone else to uh, you know. So that that's quite an exciting series. Uh, I'm looking forward to doing more of those. Um, what else there was? Um, I'm just I have this notebook which you can probably hear me rifling through, which is where I keep all my you know character notes and pronunciations and things like that right. and i've got eight pages for the to, to the strongest because of all of the um pronunciations of, of places greek place names um confessions of a bookseller the, oh the pursuit of william abbey by claire north yeah that was uh, that went that went out um and then actually an, an area which i've only recently started to get into in terms of genre um is i'm kind of doing uh, not exactly romance but it's sort of um, more mainstream novels that aren't fantasy or sci-fi that are um, about, you know, families and relationships and stuff. And they're actually quite fun. There's some great books out there. Uh, Four Minutes to Save a Life by Anna Stewart. Um, and, uh, oh, if you, look, if you fancy a bit of slightly fantastic fun, um, uh, just a good beach read, um, the, 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 advent, the Posthumous Adventures of Harold Whittaker uh, by Bobby Derbyshire is well worth listening. It's very, very funny. And very, um, it's just it's, it's all about a guy who he dies at the beginning of the book, and it's his spirit and him witnessing what happens after his death, and the consequences of some of his life choices, and it's he's very very funny, uh, and kind of poignant in places as well, quite moving. Um, so that that's yeah, I've, I've been kind of keeping fairly fairly busy really. Yeah, sounds sounds like it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, obviously you've been doing a lot of recording. Have you been able? Uh, to read a lot recently? Is, is there anything that you've read not for work uh, that you'd well, recommend? To, to be honest, um, read. I used to read for pleasure as, you know, as a kid. I read everything voraciously. I, I, it's, it's kind of weird. I, I, when I was, when I was uh, first going to school back in the 60s, shh, um, the, they were experimenting with a, a new type of phonetic writing called uh, ITA, and it was a disaster. And they started me, I was one of the, that, that, the year group that was started on it. And as a result, I didn't actually learn to read properly until I was nine years old. I was a very late starter. But once I started reading, I just kind of just got lost in words. I loved words and language. So, uh, but once I started doing audiobooks, actually sitting down to read a book for my own pleasure is kind of a busman's holiday now. It's quite a, it's quite tough. I find it hard to... I, I'm kind of always thinking, oh, how would I do this for audio? What would I, you know, it's kind of, that's always what's going on in my head. I love poetry and I teach a class uh, to young actors about poetry performance, about how to get inside the text and explore the, a poet's textures and words. Because if you can deliver a poem well, any other script is going to be just a, a walk in the park. Right. Uh, because poetry is like the most condensed, it's like short story. It's the, it's the most condensed form of, of thought on the written page where you, and, and great poetry is transcendent because it, it, it as soon as we hear it go yes i can relate to that yes even if it was written three thousand years ago we go yeah that's what it's like to be alive that's what it's like to be human and so that that's why poetry resonates so much that, that that's kind of my fallback reading i gotcha okay um well peter uh 
I'm out of questions. Um, <laughs> I don't know if there's anything else you'd like to cover. Um, um, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, unless there's anything that you've any burning questions about characters or. I mean, uh, I'll, I'll, one of the things. Yeah. yeah, when you when you're going through a text for a book, mm-hmm. and you get you don't you very seldom does an author say. The Irishman walked in with his gravelly voice that he's... That doesn't happen. A good author will give you little snippets and you find more and more about a character as you go along. You you find you pick up bits. And so it becomes a kind of forensic job to pick out the clues from the text so that by the time you arrive to record the book, you know who this character is. You you hear classic stories of people who get to the end of a book that they hadn't prepared properly to find out that the lead character was Scottish. And they're like, what? Oh, my God. Then they, they, they fight for the dinner with an English accent all the way through. But I, I had a particular character who uh, was in a book I was reading a few years back. Um, and he was uh, he was the, the, the bursar of a university. And he was rather pompous, older man in his 70s. So I sort of thought I'd go for something rather plummy, a little bit slow. Because he's described as having this rather slow, dry, dry voice. And then they said... But then find out that he was from Northern Ireland. So, right, oh, well, so he's, he's got to have a Northern Irish accent as well. So he talks like that with the accent. But then it said he also had a, a, a sort of a constant throaty, gravelly quality. So he started to talk like that. And the accent, the character slowly evolved. And then to cap the last kind of icing on the cake is that every time he, he said an S, he had a, sl- a slight whistle. So the character, when I finally embodied his voice, spoke like this. And so that's sort of how I slowly built the character together. I read the, the things that were written down, you see. So I'm, I'm doing the accent dreadfully now because I haven't practised it. But that you get the idea. It's how you have to, sometimes a, a character isn't just one thing. It's money layered. It's got lots of different, and you've got to get all of that out from the text. Right. That... Wow, that's that's quite an evolution. <laughs> go go from the beginning to the end and having to change so much. Well, exactly. Well, you kind of obviously you don't. You, by the time I actually came to record the book, he was that that voice all the way through. Right. But because I'd done my homework, like when we started started recording, I knew that this character had this throaty, chesty, slow Irish accent with a whistle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which had I not my homework, I would not have found out because it wasn't all presented like that the first time we met him. It was every time we met this character, we found out a little bit more about him, a little bit more about him, a little bit more, until I knew, okay, well, that's... So it, the, vo- the voice evolved right. as, I, as I took notes um, of, of how, he, how he appeared. Which, which you have, if you hadn't done your homework, like those other narrators we talked about earlier, then you never would have known and you would have ruined it forever, right? <laughs> <laughs> You know, hey, some people would say, well, perhaps you shouldn't have been so performative about it in the first place. So, you know. <laughs> Everybody's I, got their opinion. The devil right? of the deep blue sea. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> well, Peter, uh, just really thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I, I love your audiobook narration, uh, especially the Witcher novels. I'm really looking forward to to listen to you uh, read Ian and Banks' culture series. Um, and again, I'm in the middle of Master of Sorrows right now by Justin Call, and I'm assuming uh-huh. you'll be doing – the continue up novels. I think he's planning seven at the moment. So I think so. And they're big books. And they and really I met are. Justin. He came over to London to visit and I met him and his family. And he's just an ace guy. He's a really, really down to earth, ordinary bloke. And, and just happens to be a genius. So 
<laughs> he was, uh, I had a really nice uh, visit with him. He, he, he came over and brought his, his wife and his, his two sons. And he's just a really, really nice bloke. Someone you'd, you know, you'd happily you know, sit and have a coffee with and chat about the world, you know? Absolutely. Well, guys, listen, uh, you can find Peter on Twitter at Peter Kinney Voice. You can also find his website, peterkinney.com. Uh, but definitely check out one of his uh, several, or I guess hundreds of audiobooks on audible.com, especially the Witcher series, the Culture series, uh, Claire Norse novels, and many more to come. But Peter, thank you again so much for coming on. Great pleasure, David. Thank you. Take uh, care. You too. Hope you guys enjoyed my chat with voiceover artist Peter Kinney. Definitely check out the Witcher novels on Audible or Libro or Kobo or wherever you guys uh, listen to audiobooks. He does a phenomenal job bringing Geralt of Rivia to life uh, and, and Dandelion, however you want to say his name, but it's Dandelion to me. Uh, <laughs> and guys, uh, and just thank you so much again for tuning in. I mean, we're at 25 episodes now and it's, uh, this has been just an amazing – I'm not really going to call it a journey because it's only been four months. But uh, it's just been an amazing time getting to know these authors a little bit more than just what they show on Twitter and Facebook and what I get from their books. But um, I hope you guys just are enjoying these recordings as much as I'm enjoying recording them. Um, and just stay tuned for a ton more, guys. I've got James Rollins coming up on Tuesday. Uh, Dan Stout on the 26th. Anna Smith-Spark on the 28th. And so far in April – I've got Nick Martell, the author of The Kingdom of Liars, coming up on April 7th, and Nathan Ballingrud, um, who wrote the novel, I guess the anthology Wounds, uh, which actually there's a feature film on Hulu uh, based on one of the stories, and he also wrote North American Lake Monsters, which is about to become another series on Hulu, so definitely look forward to those. Uh, but also in April, I'm going to be having chats with Rob Hayes, John Gwynn, John Scovran, and Mike Shackle. Uh it's going to be amazing, guys. There's a lot of fantasy talk that's going to be happening in, in April um, and towards the end of this month. So just thanks again. Uh, guys, stay safe out there. Uh, I know it's crazy, but hopefully this will brighten your day just a little bit. Um, and, guys, just thanks again for following in. Thanks.